The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. That's far enough. What do you want, Miss Beckett? The truth. <laughs> Never expect that from a politician. Besides, if you really had information, wouldn't you already know the truth? Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, April 28th, 2022. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. When it comes to the truth, the saying that a picture is worth a thousand words certainly applies to political cartoons and illustrations, particularly to those of British cartoonist Bob Moran, who was interviewed by Robert Vaughn on Just Right's video platforms this past April 22nd. On today's show, we'll be featuring the part of their conversation dealing with the risks and the price of telling the truth in an age where politicians, governments, and the media are telling official lies. Today we'll be hearing about Mr. Moran's involvement with the Democracy Fund, his falling out with the London Daily Telegraph, his political motivations, and about the power of any picture worth a thousand words. It all begins right after this reminder that you can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave. Follow and like us on your favorite podcast platform and visit us at justrightmedia.org where you can access all of our social media links and archive broadcasts. As always, your financial support is appreciated and is what makes this show possible. Our guest today is British cartoonist and illustrator Bob Moran. Good day, Bob. Hi, Robert. Nice to meet you. And it's a pleasure for me. Many of Bob's cartoons have become iconic of the freedom movement in Canada, the UK, and indeed around the world. He's recently teamed up with the Democracy Fund, a Canadian charity fighting for and defending in court Canadians, individuals' um, rights and freedoms. It was established in response to the tyrannical and clearly unlawful measures taken by the Canadian federal and provincial governments during the pandemic. So, Bob, what is it about this particular organization, Canadian in its foundation, that prompted you to partner with them? Well, uh, when I found myself looking for new opportunities, having lost my job with the Daily Telegraph at the end of last year, I was in two minds about which direction to go in, because um, part of me really didn't want to stay in the mainstream media and be tied to a uh, specific news organization um, and I, I had some opportunities to do that uh, but what the democracy fund presented me with was an opportunity for almost total creative freedom uh, in the sense that uh, there's no um, there's no real editorial input you know I'm not um, having to negotiate my ideas with people um, I have a brief but it's quite loose as long as I stick to the themes of civil liberties, um, human rights, 
you know, um, I, I, I mean, it, that's quite broad scope. So it's it's lockdowns, it's mandates, it's you know the vaccines, um, but also censorship, freedom of speech. Most of the issues that people are concerned with right now around the world, and that felt to me like uh, the, the right direction for me to go in at this point in my career and at this time in in history. I wonder if you could tell us a bit about why your career path changed so dramatically with the Daily Telegraph. What was it that they saw that they did not agree with in their editorial point of view that put you in the position that you're now in, which I hope is a better position? It certainly is a better position, yes. Um, I mean, what happened between me and the Telegraph, there's a, there's a sort of, a, a, on the one hand, people in the public could look at it and, and think it was a fairly dramatic event, as you said, because on the face of it, it was a couple of tweets that I sent one day, a Twitter storm erupted, um, various people complained to the paper, and they investigated and decided to fire me. But this this came really after a number of months of friction between myself and the company. And there had been a few occasions where colleagues had attempted to have me disciplined or, or um, they'd gone to the chief executives and complained basically about me and the things I was putting on social media and the, the line I was taking on all of this. And I was simultaneously being given less and less freedom, creative freedom, and pushed more in a particular direction, particularly where the vaccines were concerned. Uh, and I really didn't feel very comfortable with that. And so, you know, I don't believe fundamentally that I was fired for posting some tweets. It was a lot more than that. Uh, yes, I may have given them um, the ammunition they needed, but it was almost a foregone conclusion. I think ultimately, had I not tweeted what I did, I still don't think I would be at the Telegraph now, if that makes sense. I think would you it was have walked away on your own because of their um, influence over your editorial position, or do you think they would have found another excuse? I think they probably would have found another excuse. I think the internal complaints would have continued and carried on, probably grown in number, and eventually they would have found a way of getting rid of me, I think. Or, but it's hard to say, isn't it? I'd like to think that eventually I would have decided to walk, but it's not, it's not an easy thing to let go of. Um, whatever your you know, uh, principles and your integrity, I... I'm relatively young, you know, I'm only 36 years old. I have a wife and three young children to support. I've got a mortgage to pay. Um, I had a very secure job with a salary and a pension and um, very hard to walk away from that and, and step off into the unknown and um, lose all of that security. And um, in many ways, my future was set there. You know, I, I probably have stayed there till I fell off my drawing chair at 85 or something that tends to be how it works but ultimately I think you know I've built up this audience and this reputation over the past couple of years for 
standing by my principles and um, being truthful and honest and open with people. And uh, I think it was the right time for me to go, certainly. And yeah, if I could go back, probably I wouldn't send those tweets because they were sent in anger, you know, and strategically it wasn't the right thing to do. But I stand by the sentiment of it and the reason I took that stand. For people who don't know, it was in response to a, a UK doctor here who is very uh, pro-lockdowns and pro-vaccinating children and pro-masks, all of it. And she's often, she's got a, a huge Twitter following and she's often asked onto news programs and things to push the government narrative and um, or again, I mean, again, she identifies as left wing as, as or, or labor. And so she will complain that the government aren't doing enough, you know, or didn't lock down soon enough and things like that. And so I sent some angry tweets to her, which um, I deleted after a couple of days, but not before uh, one of these mass Twitter pylons happened. And uh, a lot of blue tick accounts were calling for me to be sacked. And, you know, this is the world we live in now, and um, it's inevitable. If, if, you, if you want to stand up to this stuff and f- try and fight these people, you've got to be willing to lose a certain amount. And you have to know that if you, aren't, if you don't tread incredibly carefully, if you give them an opening, they'll, they'll come for you. I imagine that having the Daily Telegraph off of your back as an employer, so to speak, has... Um helped your creativity a lot? I mean, you must feel a relief in a sense that you no longer have to look over your shoulder or to second guess your artwork. Yeah, it's that second guessing, I think, that I've realized. I realized how much creative energy I was expending on worrying about the specific people I was working with that day and what they would want me to do and what their sense of humor would be and what pop culture references they would get or not get when you don't have to think about any of that and it's just you and your ideas, it's incredibly liberating. It's also quite scary, you know, because I've worked for national papers for just over 10 years, you know, it's kind of um, the bulk of my professional career has been that. So you, you get used to, in a sense, the security of knowing there are people there to check things with and um, to get feedback from, but I guess, like anything after a certain amount of time you probably need that less and less or or, um it can become more of a hindrance than a help Mm. maybe but um yeah I feel I I feel really um inspired like never before and motivated to create um and it's a wonderful feeling and I'm sort of um interested to see where things go and how far I can push my talents if that makes sense it does indeed. As a matter of fact, sometimes this cancel culture has the exact opposite effect. Um, has the Streisand effect with you uh, helped and broadened your audience? I've definitely um, gained a much broader audience mm. since leaving the Telegraph. I mean, aside from anything else, um, a lot of people are just turned off by the fact you work for a specific newspaper. There are people who just hate the telegraph you know there are people who hate any newspaper if it doesn't uh, you know if it doesn't line up with their worldview and so um 
my work in a sense my work hasn't hasn't changed that much you know the um the message of what i'm saying now is more or less what i was doing for the paper albeit pushing it further but suddenly there are people i think prepared to um have a look because i'm no longer a you know a telegraph cartoonist um <laughs> which is interesting and everything and, that entails yes yeah exactly I think that's part of the the restriction of tying yourself to a to a brand to any brand, even ones that I really agree with. You know, like Rebel News, for example. That was, uh, uh, you know, I, I considered maybe working with them because I really admire what they've been doing. But um, as soon as you align yourself and make yourself exclusive to a any any media outlet, then you are denying lots of people the opportunity to see your work or if not see it then then use it and i really wanted to make sure anybody who agreed with the message could take the work and use it and um, spread that message because one of the good things that's happened throughout this debacle is uh, there have been so many new uh, independent media platforms that have sprung up um, some of them very basic magazines, almost like pamphlets or online newspapers, and um, they have very little money. Most of them are run on a voluntary basis, but they're doing important work. And a lot of the time they are a better source of information than any of these major mainstream media outlets. And so I wanted them to have the opportunity to use, you know, professional quality artwork if they wanted and not have to pay anything. Then that was a big attraction of working with the Democracy Fund. Robert's conversation with British cartoonist illustrator Bob Moran will continue shortly. But first, on both sides of our upcoming bumper is yet another story that sounds hauntingly similar to the one just told by Mr. Moran. As heard on David Freiheit's April 19th Viva Fry interview with former Fox News journalist Ivory Hecker, I think that the rest of this parallel to Bob Moran's story speaks to a fundamental truth. For anybody who doesn't know who Ivory Hecker is, I'm just going to bring up one thing which I think everybody must see beforehand. If you're going to quit your job, there's one way to do it. Well, there's multiple ways to do it. There's good ways and there's bad ways. And this is among the best ways. Ivory Hecker is live in Montgomery County to take a look at that aspect. Thanks, guys. That's right. Before we get to that story, I want to let you, the viewers, know that Fox Corp has been muzzling me to keep certain information from you, the viewers. And from what I'm gathering, I am not the only reporter being subjected to this. I am going to be releasing some recordings about what goes on behind the scenes at Fox because it applies to you, the viewers. I found a nonprofit journalism group called Project Veritas. It's going to put that out tomorrow so tune into them but as for this heat wave across texas you can see what it's doing to ac units this one broken down as we so that is how ivory announced her next move which was after she had gone to speak with um project veritas ivory how goes the battle it's going well thanks for having me ivory elevator pitch for those who may not know who you are well, I spent nine years in corporate news, most recently at Fox Corp at their station uh, in Houston. Uh, went to one of the top journalism schools, Syracuse. I'm passionate about journalism. Um, and sadly, we are in a very interesting time in our history where you go to J school, 
where you get taught these ideals and the news corporations say, ah, just kidding. You're not going to do that anyway. So that's what I learned. Um, and which is, which is why I broke away, uh, because, um, you know, Fox gave me an ultimatum, uh, ultimatum during the pandemic, uh, basically, uh, do, do propaganda, do the narrative or get fired. And I said, well, I, I'd rather get fired. And so you said you went to uh, Syracuse Journalism School. Mm -hmm. That's what right. do they, for those who don't know, what do they, I mean, in, in the ideal sense, what do they teach you in journalism school? How many years is it? How many programs? What courses? And, and then, you know, and then we'll get into what they taught you versus what the, what the reality was like. Well, I got a bachelor's degree there at Newhouse. Um, some people just go there to get a master's for like a year, but I did the four-year course. I mean, I did broadcast journalism, so they, they teach you all, broad, all aspects of TV news. So I learned how to film, edit, um, how to write, and how, how to speak and produce a show, actually, all of it. And the ethics as, as well as the communications law and um they teach you about the purpose of journalism um i i had a great experience and i understand that not all journalism schools are like mine and that over the years things have shifted perhaps i understand i'm hearing from some j school students um that my favorite journalism school textbook is now not allowed in their in their schools um which is uh the elements of journalism and that and that teaches you that primary purpose of journalism is to is to provide people with the information they need to be free and self-governing that your first obligation is to the truth your first loyalty is to the citizen and so fox deviated from that a lot in 2020 um and my bosses in and it was out of left field and i wanted answers as to why and my bosses has admitted to me on recording that this was coming down from the ceo so that's when i was like I, it was just very sad It started in summer of 2020 is when things got strange and, you know, well, we there, there were just so many instances, but it started, HR first got called on me, I guess, when I was um, cover, I was assigned to cover Dr. Stella Emanuel, um, who went viral for you know, her, the way that she treated patients for for the illness I, I know you're on youtube i'm gonna use i'm not gonna uh, and, and the rona <laughs> so anyway uh so not only did she go viral but we also witnessed censorship on social media on us and on an unprecedented level so i covered that so i actually went to her clinic and you know showed what all the other media outlets weren't showing, you know, she does have a real clinic. There's patients in there that I talked to that said, you know, they verified what they, they corroborated what Stella was preaching in DC. Um, and so after I did that report, you know, I, I just did my own little social media video saying, guys, today was, was a bit alarming. It was reminiscent of China. As far as the censorship on social media, I think we should all take note of this. 
this as a journalist, that's an infringement on free speech and free press. And if we can't have freedom of, of thought, you know, our own business is in, is in threat. And I was, uh, I was shocked, you know, because I, I had been taught uh, all about the, you know, I went to journalism school where they talked about f- the importance of free press and free speech and talked about instances, instances of censorship in history and how it's always bad. Censorship's always bad in, in history. That's what I was taught in J school. So I was stunned when the bosses got on the phone with me for an extensive amount of time, three long phone calls the following day talking about how what a mistake I had made standing up for free speech and that I must not talk like that ever again. And I, I was shocked. I, I definitely pushed back and said, excuse me, that's the bread and butter of journalism. Anyway, so I they, they put me on a little s- social media suspension. I wasn't allowed to post for a few days. Oh and God. I was like, okay, whatever. So we proceed. Two weeks later, they assigned me to this unit, uh, this uh, uh, unit where they were tr- a hospital where they were treating uh, patients uh, for the pandemic. And I just, you know, go and cover that, cover what the doctor's doing. Well, the doctor happens to be using the same sort of medicine that Dr. Stella Emanuel was using. Now, I didn't have a bias about these medicines. I'm not, I, I'm not typically a medical reporter. Fox usually sends me to crime scenes. So I was like, I'm just going to report. I mean, Fox assigned me to this. I'm going to report what it, what's going on and leave it at that. So I was stunned when Fox gets HR on the line and says, I'm, I'm messing up again and that I'm violating their rules. And I was like, excuse me, because I allowed the doctor to say what he actually uses. And so now I'm like, okay, you guys are coming up with the this narrative and these rules on the fly and i'm supposed to know what they are i never even received a memo that i'm that i'm not allowed to say certain medicines and if i did receive that memo that's insanely creepy and i understand that i'm now receiving that memo now and why is that and so then um fox straight up said that if if i talked about these medicines again that i'd be fired and so basically I was on a ban of, of treatment in the pandemic. I couldn't cover treat, treatment for the illness in the pandemic ever again. And, uh, you know, because they, they decided that I was somehow biased because I allowed the doctors. And Fox assigned me to that doctor. I had never met the doctor. So those were some... Is this the part of one of the undercut one of your recordings where the the your higher up was saying you should have known better than to ask questions given the most recent report that came up on HCQ? Is that is 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 it? Yeah, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So that and I'm talking about Dr. Joseph Verone, yeah, at United Memorial Medical Center in Houston. Um, he's he actually the death rate at his hospital was remarkably lower than other hospitals around the nation and the world, and but in the past in the past month prior to that there had been um, a study saying that the treatment was neither harmful nor helpful. And so suddenly we're supposed to silence him and not, not let our viewers know that he's still using that. Meanwhile, my inbox, you know, I get news tips all the time as a reporter. Inbox is being blown up by people all over saying that their doctor also gave them this treatment and that, you know, it worked for them. And, I'm hearing all this, yet I'm seeing the study that says 
it's neither harmful nor helpful. So what did I do? I reported the study and I also reported the facts on the ground. Now, Fox didn't want that. They wanted the study only silence the facts on the ground. So I said, this, this is not journalism anymore. And if you're, you're going to fire me, if, if I go, if, if I somehow land upon facts that are outside of your narrative and you're not even writing, telling me what your narrative, it's such a, it's, it's such a sick mind game that play, they play in newsrooms. Like, Ooh, we don't have a narrative. We believe in the truth. You know, that's how they, that's how they talk in the newsroom. But then when it comes down to brass tacks, they're like, yeah, you'll be, you'll be fired if you say this. So, so they have this unspoken narrative. Of course, quote unquote, these medicines were the long known and accepted treatments that actually work. In particular, hydroxychloroquine, which when first banned by the government was for me the smoking gun that made it no longer possible to believe or trust anything coming out of the mouths of our politicians and medical establishment. When someone says, we don't have a narrative, we believe in the truth, then you know that they're lying and that their narrative is the lie. How can you possibly believe in the truth and not have a narrative? Isn't that a contradiction? If you believe in the truth, then your narratives, if they are consistent with that belief, will narrate the truth. And above all, above all, censorship and the banning of pertinent facts from being reported are as good as a guilty plea to their own corruption. They're terrified that the public will convict them in the so-called court of public opinion, where even political cartoons make the tyrants fear the justice that so threatens them and their unearned power. I'm loving your work, and they have become iconic. And it's so much can be said for a political cartoon that's just in a simple little panel with just maybe sometimes words, sometimes not, can capture a moment in history and become a focal point for um, rallying around and for understanding an issue in a complex way that a tome may not be able to illustrate just as well. So I appreciate your work. Um, you know, some of these political characters, especially Boris Johnson in, in the UK, um, lend themselves to caricature. They, yes. they really do like his flyaway hair, Trump's flyaway hair, his robust body. How does blackface Trudeau lend himself <laughs> to caricature? The question almost answers itself. <laughs> yeah, and it, I've um, I've decided uh, a few times to deliberately represent Trudeau in blackface, but a very uh, absurd cartoon version of blackface. So it's just a, a black circle with two silly eyes and a kind of the white lips and things. And now An Al Jolson type of blackface. Yeah, exactly. And. In this country, I don't know, I, I presume in Canada, everyone knows about his blackface, but in the UK, there are still a number of people who missed that or who, who weren't aware of it because the media didn't really make a big thing about it at the time. Now, obviously, if he hadn't actually done that and if there weren't photographs of it, but you, would, you wouldn't think of doing it anyway, but you would never get away with that kind of imagery. It's interesting. Some people say, why have you done that? That's really offensive. You can't draw him in blackface and then you show them the photographs and they can't believe it you know <laughs> say how is he still in power you know how did he get away with that because he's a liberal he's not a conservative he's a yeah exactly yeah i suppose uh, liberal conservative yeah i think douglas murray said at the time 
that these photographs were coming out um, and he was having to admit to more and more occasions when he had uh, put on blackface. He says something like, one wonders whether there was a, um, at a particular point in Justin Trudeau's life, wh whether there was a single weekend when he wasn't in blackface. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question and probably, uh, yeah. you know, I'd love to hear the answer to that, but. Could you tell I us think the, the thing about his sorry the, the thing yeah. about his blackface is it's such um such a brilliantly simple representation of the hypocrisy of all of these people. Yes, yeah, that's what I like about it. That that is the only reason that people pick up on it. When it was first discovered that, that he was in blackface, I did a video with uh, a a friend of mine, Salim Ansur, and we came up and we basically said, no, this does not mean that he's a racist, right? He was playing a part at a party, that kind of thing. And a lot of people have done it and nobody thinks anything of it unless you're a conservative politician and then God help you. Yeah. But, um, and I don't think that he's a racist in that sense. He is a racist, but only in the sense that he actually does believe that race matters um, as yes. a politician. Yeah. You know? So he's, yeah, a exactly. he's a racist in that sense, not because he wears blackface. Is it a net positive or is it a net loss in terms of where you have found yourself close to a year later? Oh, it's been a net positive for sure. There's been so much support. I mean, viewers flock to me from all over the world because people have, you know, people aren't dumb. They know when they're being deceived by a news outlet and they've, they've been watching news deception for so long and to finally see a, uh, a news corporation employee say, yeah, we have been deceptive behind the scenes. It was like, thank you for a lot of people. And so they turned to me and said, hey, we might actually trust Ivory's coverage a little bit more because she's keeping it real about this. And so people have been very supportive. Viewers have been very supportive. And I've, I've been uh, venturing out doing some independent journalism ever since then. Uh, independent journalism as well as a lot of news commentary on YouTube. Uh, YouTube doesn't like independent journalism too much. So I have to put that over on my separate website. But yeah, it's going it's going pretty well so far. I mean, YouTube has uh, given me some strikes <laughs> for facts outside the narrative. Because here's the thing, now that I'm independent, I feel it's my duty to zone in on those shadowy areas where the light's not being shed to look at the facts outside the narrative. So I focus a lot of my journalism and attention as well as news commentary attention on those areas. And those areas, as it turns out, I'm, fi I'm finding that the social media corporations and the news corporations are all in agreement on what to censor, which I think is very creepy because now that I can cover what Fox didn't want me to cover, instead of Fox censoring me and muzzling me, it's YouTube censoring me. So I realize that Fox, YouTube, NBC, everybody is on the same page on censorship, still trying to get on to the bottom of who is incentivizing them to all collab like that. I'm sure you've been branded now on Wikipedia and on the interwebs as being far right-ish in what you're covering. Have you noticed that or has it not happened yet? Um, I don't think anyone's made a Wikipedia page about me and I don't really care to have one. So uh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I, haven't, I haven't seen anything far right. And it was really funny, uh, you know, because Fox is known to be right wing. So it was just so interesting to watch people try to figure out where I'm coming from. I was making people think for themselves. Wait, if she's calling out Fox, does that mean she's a leftist? 
or or is she even more far right than Fox is? What's going on? You know, <laughs> like how about you guys think for yourselves and realize that I'm just trying to get to to the truth. Then that makes Ivory Hacker just right. And yes, you are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Now, in one of your cartoons, you um, illustrate the Ukrainian flag. And of course, you have uh, Klaus Schwab, the World Economic Forum, peeking out between the blue and the yellow, going, boo. Yeah. I love that cartoon. And um, I would agree that there's more behind this um, conflict in the Ukraine than is being spoken about in the dependent press. Um, what's your take on the situation? given your cartoon. Yeah, I mean, that cartoon is um, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I guess. I mean, I'm I'm suggesting that there's some involvement, perhaps, and, and there's more going on, and it's kind of um, deliberately specific with having the grotesque face of Klaus Schwab hiding behind the flag. Um, I'm not saying that he's orchestrating the whole thing, uh, although, you know, I suppose it's kind of funny in a, in a dark sense to think that he might be. Um, but I, I cannot understand the number of people who have been totally uh, awake and on board with what's been going on through the pandemic. And they've learned not to trust the media, not to trust their government. Um, but when Russia-Ukraine situation began, it was like they immediately switched back and said, right now, everything is true. Everything we're being told about this must be true. Um, and you think, no, you, you know, you come so far in developing your critical thinking. Don't, don't abandon it over this. Um, it's, it's very difficult, regardless of what's actually happening in Ukraine and who's involved and who's doing what to whom. It's very difficult to see how eventually the outcome for most of us in the West is not going to be more of the dystopian hell that we've been put through uh, under the under the guise of a pandemic and, and controlling a virus. Um, it, it will probably end up in very similar restrictions on our freedoms. And this time the excuse will be there's a war and there's food shortages and there's an energy crisis. Maybe the threat of nuclear war, who knows? But it was very easy to see for me at the beginning, well, ultimately, this if there's an agenda and if they're trying to push humanity in a certain direction, which I, I think is happening, they're trying to push us towards a very miserable, dark place, then this situation, you know, whether it's erupted coincidentally or not, is going to help the people who want to move us to that place. So I think it's sensible to look at it through that lens and also to be skeptical about all of the reports coming out. I mean, and my initial response was, this is a disaster because to come out of this situation where governments all over the world have abandoned democracy, abandoned all the principles of democracy, imposed totally tyrannical, murderous measures, most of them, certainly in the UK, were actually illegal. There was no legal basis for doing these things. Uh, they've refused. They've they've completely shut down debate. They've cancelled people. Um, they've refused to engage with the other side at all. And this, I mean, this this is means essentially 
Thousands of people have been killed by the direct actions taken by their governments. And we go out of that, we go out of that straight into this um, conflict in Ukraine. And you just think, yeah, but there's no, who are the good guys now? Who, who are any of us in terms of um, as nations to stand up and, and call out tyranny anymore? We've all embraced tyranny. We've all done, I mean, people who supported lockdowns and masks and school closures and coerced vaccinations, and all of these undeniably tyrannical things, logically, they should have been saying immediately, well, the Ukrainians should surrender to Putin because it's fine to live under those kind of conditions. You don't need democracy. You do, but what happened was that the same people immediately started saying, the Ukrainians must have agency. They must have total freedom to decide what they want to do with their lives and how they want to live. And you think, you don't think that, though. You've said repeatedly for two years that those things don't matter. And that in itself is incredibly dangerous, that level of cognitive dissonance of just being able to um, abandon principles for two years ferociously and then pick them up again as if you've always thought them we can't function as a society like that where people are just uh, um, they react to any given situation not by sitting and thinking for themselves but by switching on the tv and just being told be appalled by this be totally okay with that ignore that what's going on over there um i don't see how we can move forward and progress as a species, if the majority of people function that way. It's, it's very funny here in Canada, Justin Trudeau just came out in celebration of the 40th anniversary of his father bringing in the, um, or helping to bring in, because he didn't actually bring it in, the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, a document right. which he totally ignores himself. Yes. The irony, the hypocrisy, again, it's lost on everybody because they don't tune into the independent press as much as the dependent press, unfortunately. It's fascinating the way that the politicians have done that throughout. Of um, it's not, You know, a lot of the time, I think, a lot of the time hypocrisy is um, can be a bit accidental or subconscious or, or clumsy, or people forget what they might have said at a particular time. But the, the hypocrisy has felt so deliberate mm. and so obvious that it's almost more like um psychological torture that they are deliberately doing these things um i mean if you look at mental health for example we've had uh more damage done to mental health than ever before in in this country through all of the lockdowns and everything else and throughout you would have very occasionally you'd have certain government ministers popping up and saying, I'm starting this new campaign for mental health. We must all remember that, you know, our minds are as important as our bodies. And it was just unbelievable. And then the next day they'd introduce another lockdown. Or um, you think that's that feels calculated to me. That feels like an attempt to deliberately confuse people's moral perceptions, basically. I would have to agree. And then, and then they turn around. I'm talking about the people here. They are beaten by their overlords and then they turn around they stand out dutifully on their front porch and bang pots and pans in favor of the nhs yes 
I, we're living in a dream world sometimes, I, I, I think, and I, you just can't make some of this stuff up. If you scripted it and try to sell it to Hollywood, they go, come on, Richard, <laughs> that's not yeah, it. That's it, Robert. And, you know, that's what has made my job more difficult. The job of satirizing these people has become so hard because one of the tools you have is you take what's going on and how politicians are behaving or how people are behaving and you exaggerate it to quite a large degree to try and highlight the truth of what they're actually doing. And there's no room for exaggeration a lot of the time. You can't possibly uh, think of more extreme scenarios sometimes with this stuff. Um, and and in, in, in a similar vein, another one of the tools we use as cartoonists is um, to look at what's happening now and what, what the government have announced or say they're going to do and then you try and take it three or four steps ahead down the line and, and you kind of say, oh, if they're doing this today, um, they might be doing this next. And often that will be completely hyperbolic. You know, it'll be that, that's where the humour will come in because it will be slightly absurd. So everyone knows they're not really going to go that far, but it's a way of pointing out that what they are actually doing is ludicrous. And what I found happening quite early on was I would be coming up with ideas of, huh, you know, if they're saying this today, they might be saying this next week. And then they'd be saying that thing two days later. They'd be actually doing the things I had dreamt up as kind of ridiculous exaggerations and, and um, absurd imaginings of where they could go. And then you have you have obviously most of the satirists and the other cartoonists aren't even trying to do the job at all. Um, they are simply pumping out free additional propaganda for the government. They've totally embraced the idea that everyone's in danger and that masks work. And there's been an interesting thing where they've targeted us. They've targeted the other cartoonists and comedians or whoever it is who are trying to point out that it's absurd and actually satirise the government, um, they've sort of turned around and, and started to criticise us instead. I actually um, featured in a, in a Guardian, uh, a political cartoon in The Guardian. Um, there was a little caricature of me uh, in this cartoon that was supposed to be a kind of a pyramid of the most evil people <laughs> um, who, who were opposed to what was going on. And that was a really kind of fourth wall breaking meta moment where, uh, you know, I was being cartooned as a cartoonist. You must have been uh, particularly proud at that moment to have reached such a, a standard. Eh? Yeah, certainly not a moment I ever expected. Um, but yeah, and it's um, it was kind of depressing, actually, because I thought it probably shows how how few of us there are if if they have to uh, include me in there. Mm. Um, you know, it was on it was on the sort of tier, the third tier down, I think, which was media characters who are causing trouble. Um, and there were only about eight of us, I think, which was sad to see. Yeah. Hey, free speech. How you doing, buddy? Well, not good. Oh, what's wrong? Everyone seems to hate me all of a sudden. Oh, don't be silly. Like, I mean, they kind of do a little bit, but like, what makes you say that? People think I cause violence now and they're treating me like a criminal. 
People are actually celebrating the genocide of me. Well, celebrating the genocide of you is a little bit of a strong but accurate way of saying it, but come on, man. This is just a little bump in the road. You know, what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. But they're trying to kill me. Well, you still gotta be optimistic. And you're great. You know that in your heart, don't you? I don't. I just feel depressed. Like everyone used to love me and now I don't have any friends anymore. Except you. <laughs> Let me stop you right there. I actually can't be friends with you anymore either. What? Oh yeah, like it's nothing personal. It's just politically incorrect to like you right now. So I can't be seen with you. So you're just gonna abandon me? Look, off the record, I love you. I can't catch any of the heat out there for standing up for you right now. Plus, I get a tremendous amount of social reward for publicly hating you for what you did. But I didn't do anything. I know, but the point here isn't about what's true or what's right. The point is about being able to blame you for deeper problems that you had nothing to do with. It is? Yeah, and taking you out will actually prevent those deeper problems from being able to be addressed and fixed, so it's great. This sucks. I feel so terrible. I thought you guys needed me. Oh, we do. You do? Oh yeah. So you guys want me back? Uh, no, no, we don't. But that doesn't make any sense. Sure it does. It's kind of like if you were crawling through the desert, nearly dead from dehydration, then you come across a glass of water. Sometimes it's best to pour the water out. So you guys just don't want me at all anymore. No, we're done with you. But what will you guys talk about without me? Whatever the media tells us to talk about. Well, how would you express what's on your mind and heart as an individual then? <laughs> I don't know. We haven't thought that far ahead. Never realized what a piece of garbage I am. You're the worst. I guess so. But if I'm so terrible, why'd the Founding Fathers put me in as the First Amendment in the Constitution? Probably a typo. I don't... I don't know about that. Well, they weren't very wise people. I think the emotionally charged people screaming the loudest today have more wisdom than the Founding Fathers did. Don't you think? Did you know that all the countries without me quickly become horrible communist dictatorships? I didn't know that. Well, now that you do, don't you think the same thing would happen here? Uh, I don't think so. I assume they would have made an announcement like, hey guys, we're doing a communist dictatorship takeover in your country. And then that would give we the people a chance to rise up and stop it. I don't think they'd make that announcement. I'd be such a conspiracy theorist. That's another good point. Without you, people won't be able to spread conspiracy theories anymore. Or truth. Small price to pay. Somehow it feels safer without you from what we're told by those who control you. You really think I'm a dangerous bad guy? Look, you're taking this too personally. Off the record, I like you. Then why won't you stand up for me? It's kind of like, say you're in the back seat of a car full of people, and you look out ahead and you can see the car is speeding towards a cliff. You're not going to tell the driver to stop or turn. That would bring too much unwanted attention onto you. So what do you do? Keep your mouth shut and sail off the cliff with an agreeable smile on your face. Well, I guess I'll be going now. Right. But before you go, could you please apologize for what other people did? Um, uh, how's that my fault? <laughs> because we're blaming you. Okay. I'm sorry. Apology not accepted. Bye. Bye.
things should start getting better now. A pin to the top of your uh, Twitter account, which, by the way, is at uh, Bob's Cartoons, is a, a lovely illustration of an elderly man and woman holding hands and looking off into the horizon with the caption, never surrender your right to be with the people you love. It evokes an emotion of tenderness and nostalgia for the simple things in life. And have the measures about family gatherings, um, weddings, funerals, visiting the elderly in, the, uh, in their um, long-term care facilities, and, and even holding their hands while they're dying, been some of the more, um, some of the more ex um, exceptionally troubling rules you've had to deal with. Yes, and I think that these uh, people talk about basic human rights, fundamental rights and privileges, but there are also, I think, to an extent, fundamental truths, moral truths that people have forgotten about. There are things that should always transcend politics and fear and um, things you should prioritize and put first that have been um, put right back behind other things. And I thought early on, you know, it was, it was what I thought was the most dangerous thing, these intrusions into the most intimate parts of human existence. This, these are places where no government should ever go. You know, the relationship between a couple who've been married for 40 years, um, nobody, not politician, not a care home worker, not a scientific advisor has the right to say, you can't see your husband for six months or your wife. I mean, there were stories of uh, in this country of um, couples where if one was in a care home, um, the, the partner would sell the house and check themselves into the same care home just to be so they were allowed to be with their their spouse um and you know that cartoon um twitter hates that cartoon it's in terms of the censorship and the limiting of how it gets shared and how many likes it's allowed to have and retweets wow. they've really clamped down on that image and lots of the people who follow me tell me they have to re-like it every single week because their light gets removed from I like it. it right now and I can't believe I hadn't already liked it and shared it. I shared it. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's interesting because when I did it, I remember thinking, is this, um, is there any point in drawing this? Is this just too obvious to everybody? You know, there's nothing cutting, sarcastic, uh, or controversial about this. It's just, I thought, you know, this is more like a, greetings card or something that you might Bob, I love people. these I love these particular ones that you're doing they're very uh, Norman Rockwell-esque in a sense that he didn't do anything that was really controversial as a, as an illustrator as an artist but what he did and forgive me if I'm making a comparison I know some people don't like that but what oh he no did, I don't mind at all it's fine okay then when your wit is like B. Clyburn and a Gary Larson I love that too yeah <laughs> But these Norman Rockwell-esque pictures of yours are the ones that I think will stand the test of time in the sense that, sure, a truck falling on Justin Trudeau's head is very timely and yes. it's beautiful. 
but this will stand the test of time. 50 years from now, people are going to wonder what, 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 what is this truck falling on Justin Trudeau's head? But that, that image will last forever. And I, and I love it. I'd love to see more of them because they're depicting something that I think that we're losing. Yeah. And that is our innocence. We're losing our innocence here in the West, especially. And um, I love those cartoons. Please keep them up. Yes, thank you. Uh, and, and yeah, I think that's what I realized is that this is something that's, if not lost, it's in danger of being lost. And it's something that nobody should have any reason to argue with. But we happen to find ourselves in a time where, um, sure enough, you know, I post that cartoon with that message and hundreds of people start telling me it's irresponsible. And they don't agree with it. And I just thought, what a fascinating time to be alive, you know. And obviously, it's, there's, uh, it sparked a lot of debate between different people with different points of view. Um, but I think I'm probably most proud of that cartoon, in a sense, because um, I, I, I get lots of messages from people about my work and... Um, thanking me for the stance I've taken and everything like that. But I think that cartoon has had a, a real impact on certain people who maybe, um, I, I mean, I wouldn't say that it's completely woken people up to what's going on or something, but uh, I have heard that someone has seen that and decided to go and visit their parents or to um, rescue their relationship with a, with a wife or a girlfriend or something like that. Um, simply from that very simple image and that simple message, which is really humbling and, and touching for me, you know, and I never expected my work to have that kind of um, power um, to be able to help people in that way. And like you say, it's those, those are the images that can do that. Um, you know, the people need those cartoons of specific politicians and they need that cathartic release and they need to be able to laugh at them and see people poking fun at them, but they're never going to have that transcendent quality, that ability to connect with people on a, on a, on a deep level. Um, that, that images like the never surrender can, I think. And uh, there's another one that comes to mind and that is walk this way, a recent illustration oh, of yours. Yeah. yeah, and it's simply a um, man and a woman. You see their backs. So she's holding a babe in arms and uh, he's holding a child's hand and they're just simply walking, walk this way. I mean, tell me you the, haven't received death threats over that. The, yeah, the, um, again, depicting a, an ordinary family, you know, with a man and a woman and their children is now controversial. It makes some people very, very angry. Um, and I'm a bit, you know, I, I think with that first one with Never Surrender, I didn't anticipate how controversial it would be. But now I'm in a place where I absolutely know that that will prove controversial. And it's exactly why I wanted to do it, because um, we can't get to a point where we're afraid or ashamed of saying, here's a family. Um, and it's lovely and it's beautiful. And um, this is a good way to to live not that you want to live a different way i don't mind but we certainly shouldn't be afraid of of saying you know this is great um and i think for me you were asking about you know what aspects of it really 
that troubled me most. And um, for me, the, the one thing above anything else is how children have been treated um, through this whole thing. The clearly calculated targeting of children, um, even very, very young children. Your stabbed vest cartoon illustrates that really well. Yeah, and that was probably the hardest one to do out of all of them. Um, it was it was a very, I guess, you, you know, you have to go to quite a dark place to draw something like that. And um, I was really trying to get people to confront the reality of what was going on in, in the kind of, I suppose, the harshest possible way. Um, and I hesitated about putting it out. I sat on it for a few weeks because I was in two minds about how it would go down and whether it would be too much for people. Um, but I just feel like it's what's been done to children um, is the most evil and appalling aspect of this whole sorry story. And um, it's very hard to escape the idea that it's been deliberate, you know, and then not just indoctrination. I think for older children, it's about getting them used to the cult of wearing masks and the idea of regular restrictions on their freedoms and, um, and teaching them to only look at, as you were saying that, you know, trust this media and don't listen to this media and, you know, here's where to get your information. But for the younger children, it's, it's essentially just been psychological and physical torture. Um, and getting them at a very early age to see themselves as dangerous, to see themselves as diseased and um, making them shoulder this non-existent responsibility of protecting adults. Again, this, this key core principle of good society that adults protect children not the other way around has been reversed and it's like people can't see it they don't seem to think that that matters i know it's quite appalling well bob um if making people think and being controversial is any sign of success for a political cartoonist you're very successful and i and i really appreciate you taking the time today to join me thank you very much thank you robert it's been a pleasure great to speak to you so, if making people think is what Bob Moran is doing, then no wonder he gets so much hate mail and can't work for the fake news media. Think about that. And in addition to that thoughtful note, here's something else we'd like you to think about. And that is this. Think about joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Color into black and white Under the bedclothes Everything will be alright Hello uh, I'm Maxwell Smart I'm a great admirer of your books Oh, that's nice I've read everything that you've written From the clock that lost its talk to Happy Hippo takes a trip well, Would you like for me to autograph a book for you, Mr. Mr. Smart? How about the guest book in my apartment? What are you doing for dinner tonight? I'm eating. <laughs> yes, well, couldn't we eat together? Oh, I'm sorry, I can't. 
I have to watch a mouse tonight. A mouse? Yes. You see, I do my own illustrating, and I have to study the mouse so I can draw it for my new book, Seymour the Psychedelic Mouse. Seymour the Psychedelic Mouse. Yeah. Well, well, couldn't you do that uh, tomorrow night? Oh, no. I rented the mouse for tonight. 